everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Ideology. It's Drew Stedman here with Mick Murray, and we are picking up week two on faith and science. Uh, Last week, Mick disclosed that he applied to be an astronaut on a civilian space flight to the moon. Let it be, Lord. And so please continue in that prayer request, and you're welcome to vote Mick if given the opportunity. He also disclosed that he has given a TED Talk on the epistemological interface between faith and science. Intersection. Oh, I'm sorry, Mick. I don't know. It's good. The epistemological intersection between faith and science. So brownie points for everyone who can make sense of that title. Uh, though it is a great one. So with that kind of background, I'm going to let Mick give the recap of what we talked about last week before we dive into today's topic. Yeah, basically, we just we looked at the history of epistemology that is, again, the study of how we know things and deal with, with ontology, the study of that which is actually real, that which is. And that for the bulk of human history, there's been no qualm or few qualms with the notion of the supernatural or the metaphysical, something beyond what we can see and taste and touch and hear. There are some early strains, but then exploding through the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, the scientific revolution, with these tools, this approach, the scientific method that was observational and and could test hypotheses that was ironically largely fueled by people of faith that if God is a rational God, then the created order has to be able to be understood rationally. And one of the side effects of that, though, was this sweeping anti-belief or what became maybe a, a, a religious belief in and of itself, what Drew talked about scientism last week, that we've gone beyond just the scientific method and pure naturalism and materialism to say that some would say that science is all that we can know. It's all the natural world is all that can be known. And we talked about the different ways that that affect us. We began to talk about ways that we believe that science actually bolsters faith, that there's not a fundamental tension between science and faith. However, we do have to start with the right framework. And all of us have ontologies or basic assumptions about reality. And then we build from there. And so based on our baseline assumptions, we will interpret the world around us uh, through those frameworks. And so for, for me personally, it took years of rewiring and, and being steeped in the, in the scriptures and the Christian meta-narrative and personally believing that that is the more coherent explanation of the world around us and that's it's more thorough and is rational even though it is predicated on God's self-revelation to us that faith can't be proved in that sense talked briefly about some of the the counter arguments that, uh, again, to be charitable to my atheistic friends, that they really do have a faith in science because it's observable, because for them it corresponds most closely to reality. But we do want to pick that notion back up that for us, there's not a fundamental tension. There are some sticky problems that are worth paying attention to and thinking deeply about, but there's not a fundamental tension when we start with God's self-revelation towards us, then the the natural sciences, the, the created order, only seeks to bolster worship and appreciation for who God is with that framework. And so we want to uh, jump back into some of those thoughts today. So Drew, why don't you take us a little further down the road? 
Well, let's start with this this concept that every belief system has to make sense of the empirical data that it encounters in the world. So every person lives within a belief system, and every belief system has to make sense of the data that it encounters in the world. And that is going to be equally true for somebody who is an atheist who believes in scientism, as it is for a devout Christian that has faith in Jesus. We have our faith, and then we have to interpret the world, which would include the science of our world, as well as many other things that we encounter. Um, What's interesting about this conversation, before we actually get into what are some of the places that we really see science as confirming and bolstering what we know to be true in faith, I I do want to point out that this is actually a pretty hot topic in culture today. So even if you just stepped outside of Christianity and were just within the secular world, I think it would be fair to say that there is a type of epistemological crisis going on right now in our society. And what I mean by that is, how do we know something to be true? I would say in the West, the last couple hundred years, there's been this strong belief and rationality that things are known through analysis and through scientific study. And what you're starting to know it notice is over the last 50, maybe 100 years, people are starting to push back on that. And, and basically what they're articulating is that there's a lot of other means of knowledge. There's a lot of other valid epistemologies other than just science. And um, you see a lot of this conversation going on in some of the anti-colonialist movements or people just recognizing that what may be rational to me might actually be the fact that I can't live and see outside of my own Western European worldview. And maybe it's not as rational as I think it is. Maybe it's culturally conditioned. And, And I think, you know, mirroring this is a lot of relativity that we find in culture and so I'm watching this thing play out um, in our society, and I think what it's prompting is people are grasping, how do we know something to be true? And that's what I mean by epistemological crisis. How can we be certain about something being true? And there was this pretty steady confidence in science for a long time, but I don't know that that's actually the case anymore, even among non-believers. And I think a lot of people, they're left kind of staring into the void, thinking, well, if science can't prove truth, then what can? Actually, to that point, sorry to break in, Drew, there's actually among some scientific circles right now, there's talk of a dark horizon or the dark ages of science reemerging, that basically science has probed the limits that it can. And there's some, some real anxiety in the scientific world in some circles right now that what will the next 100 years of science, 200, 300 years look like? because we're not making the significant breakthroughs that we once did. We've probed just about as deeply as we can probe. And and people are calling into question even things that they thought to be true scientifically. Well, are those really actually true? Was science as surefire a means of obtaining truth as we thought it once was? Yeah, I I think there, there, as you said, Mick, I think if you could define the early stage of modern science as marked by optimism, it seems like in some circles at least, that's turned over to pessimism of wondering how can we know things to be true. What's fascinating, though, is um, when I look in the secular world, there's not really a good replacement. So there's a lot of people challenging science, but still, that's the one agreed-upon thing in our society that people can point to. If if I point to my faith, that might just be seen as something that's good for me, um, or some other means of knowledge that might be considered superstition or the realm of personal truth, whatever that means. But even in a society where people are less certain with science, that's still kind of all we have. And so it's fascinating. You know, I'll I'll see these news articles pop up where people will try to make moral arguments based on what can be scientifically proven. 
Um, I saw one recently where people are talking about uh, monogamy in marriage um, and are human beings made for monogamy? You know, they're kind of looking at other animal life and, and saying, well, if other animals have multiple partners, shouldn't humans have multiple partners? And it's kind of this whole argument. And I'm sitting there thinking, I was like, first of all, do we want to make our morals based on what animals do? I'm not so sure that that's the right way to make morals. I, you know, if you go down that line of thinking long enough, you get to the survival of the fittest, which I really hope that nobody's making the case for. Eat our arrivals, children, and so on yeah, and so forth. Yeah, there's quite a few things that animals do that I don't know that I want to write a HuffPost article about making a moral case for why humans should do the same, because at the core, we're animals. Um, but the reason those articles are getting written is science is all we have. And so we have these questions we're grappling with of what does marriage look like. And in the absence of religious belief, we have to have something. There has to be something that we can coalesce around that arbitrates truth to society. And we're in a crisis right now where people aren't clear about what that is. And so that leads into our topic today of as believers, I I think what, what we can do is we can be clear on what is the realm of faith and then how does faith lead us into science And I think there's a lot of really neat solutions on the horizon for those of us who follow Jesus, because we can have as our starting points some assumptions of truth that begin in God's own self-revelation that then actually give us a foundation to tackle other topics without having to try to make science prove everything in the world, even as scientists themselves are up against science's own limits. um, We can still engage science in a really powerful way. And that's been the legacy of the church for a millennium. Um, and we get to step into that. So, Mick, why don't we why don't we start off? You know, when we look at science, history, sociology, all of that, what are the few of the things that we've found that have really bolstered our faith, that have helped us? And, and we said this last week that at the end of the day, the Christian faith is faith. It's God revealing Himself to us and us responding to Him. But that does not mean it's not rational. And I think there's plenty of scientific and rational arguments that really testify to God, and that's historically been the realm of apologetics. So on the one hand, uh, we want to be clear on what the limitations are, that ultimately God has to reveal himself to us, that science in and of itself cannot explain God without God's own self-revelation. So there are limits, but that does not mean there's not plenty of really helpful value in apologetics. So what has that been for you? What have been a few of the things that have helped you ground your faith? Yeah, we made some allusions to this last week talking about apologetics, but there have been some, I mean, all all throughout history, this is not a new phenomenon. In fact, the word apologia in the Greek used in the New Testament, to be ready to give a defense, to be ready to give a, a reason for the faith that you have in Christ, yet with humility, with gentleness. So for me, the work of Jeff Myers out of, I believe it's Colorado Springs and, and his ministry there, Summit Ministries, and I haven't read much of Josh McDowell and some of the others. Even Lee Strobel's Case for Christ, super approachable book, but takes a, a journalist's perspective and, and really presses into some of the data around the resurrection in particular. And he interviews many of the leading minds of the past you know, 50 years in, in that regard. What I found is that there's nothing to shy away from when it comes to Christian claims. There is, of course, an element of faith. You will not prove anything by going down the the road of apologetics. But as I have confronted my own doubts, confronted the doubts of others, and and dug into the historicity of the scriptures and the, the science of textual criticism and so on and so forth, I have found that there is, you know, if truth is truth, then it can be approached with genuine questioning, with a search for knowledge. And I've 
yet to be rebuffed in my personal pursuit of truth. Now, I say that, and the an interesting phenomenon happens as I ask more questions and press into uh, all the research that's been done out there. The more I learn, the more I learn how much there is to learn. Or another way to say that is the more I learn, the more I learn how much I don't know. And I probably have more questions now than when I began, but nothing that I have pressed into or uncovered has eroded my faith. On the other end of that spectrum, that's from a more uh, kind of intellectual pursuit. And of course, I'm thinking Greek here in, in parsing this out. We are whole people. But from the standpoint of just a worshiper and a follower of Jesus and, and one who believes in the majesty of God, and, and I read Romans one twenty last week, but this idea that we can understand the nature of God through the created order. Piper wasn't the first to coin this, but that God has, we can get to know God through his two books. The one is the word, the other is the world. That the word, of course, precedes the world in framing rightly how we understand the world, but still we can look at what God has created and understand some of who God is. My kids go to a classical school, and as I've been studying classical education, one of the things I really appreciate about classical education is that true classical education before, again, the Enlightenment, classical education had a deep appreciation of synthetic knowledge. And synthetic there, that usage meaning the holism of knowledge, it's synthesized. There's a a synthesis that it all proceeds from one uh, beginning. And then throughout the scientific revolution, it took classical education and turned it more into analytic knowledge. And so it was taking things apart. So if you were going to dissect, you know, a, a body to understand its constituent parts, I think we went too far with analytic knowledge and lost touch with the whole, the holism of knowledge. In that now, you know, if you're going to get a PhD, it's a subset of 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 knowledge. Whereas when people were, were learned in the philosophies and the, in the natural sciences back in the 15, 16, 1700s, there was this appreciation for the integratedness of all knowledge. And as a believer, that makes sense because we believe that everything begins with God, comes from God, will return back to God, that part of Jesus's mission on the earth was to reconcile all things to himself. Yes, people, but I believe all things, all things, the created order being uh, part of that mission. And so as as believers, if I'm going to study history, that's actually truly a subset of theology. If I'm going to study sociology, that's actually truly a subset of theology, that all of our ologies find their origin in the person of God himself. And so that as a believer with a biblical worldview, I can engage in any discipline, and that discipline can actually bolster my faith and actually increase my worship of God because it's revealing something of his nature. Uh, Years ago, I had a kind of, I can't remember if it was a dream or just a mental picture when I was thinking and praying about these things. And in this mental picture, I was sitting in a, a darkened warehouse. I was at a, like a school desk. And the warehouse stretched on to my right, and my right and my left kind of infinitely. And in front of me were hundreds of windows that were mainly darkened. 
some of the windows, you know, the shades were drawn back partially and, and some more than others. And then as my eyes adjusted kind of in this mental picture, I could see there were actually thousands of windows, millions of windows, but we'd only started to draw the shades back on, you know, a few hundred of them. And again, some more than others, but none more than maybe, you know, 25%. And then in this kind of vision, I could make out that certain words were written on these windows, like anthropology or chemistry and particle physics and and so on and each of these windows represented a field of study and beyond the windows i was just starting to be able to make out there was like this landscape kind of this edenic landscape that was the realm of god if you will god's the new heavens the new earth or heaven however you want to think about that and it made sense to me immediately that what we are doing when we are probing into all these different branches of learning is slowly unveiling the broader picture of who God is, what his, his world that he created was intended to be, and that we've only just begun to scratch the surface. That there are fields, there are probably millions of fields of knowledge that we don't even know that we don't know what they are. And the ones that we have begun to probe, we have only just begun to probe. And that's incredibly exciting to me. And that's incredibly empowering as I think from a a pastoral ministry standpoint, that as I am working with believers who are in all sorts of different fields, they often can't connect their spirituality with their tangible physical work. And I think there are certain instrumental values to work, of course, with evangelism and discipleship and ways to demonstrate the, the, the ways of God. But I think even beyond that, the discoveries that are being made and the advances for those with eyes to see are only augmenting our faith and bolstering our worship of God. There's a verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 25, 2, that says it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's the glory of kings to search it out. And I think in our day and age, that's going to be an important revelation that we are commissioned as believers to seek out the glory of God. And to me, the sciences is a realm where we get to, to do that, where we get to practice that, that as we are seeking out what God has created, that we are unveiling aspects of his nature that have never been observed before in, in that way. And that when the, the writers of the Old Testament, when they looked up at the, at the heavens and you know, said, the heavens proclaim your handiwork, and they could only see what they could see with the naked eye, how much more we, with all the advances that we've made and the abilities to peer even deeper into the complexity and the beauty and the the majesty of the created order, how much more should our worship reflect those advances? Amen. I love that picture, that vision. I think that's a great description of science rightfully placed. Let me turn the corner here and hit a few things that have been personally helpful for me as I study science and history and sociology. What are some of the things that that I've run into that have, have helped me? I'm going to run through a few of them. There's probably quite a few more. First is the whole notion of creation. This is something that every belief system has to grapple with is existence. Science itself, I have read stuff of, you know, how certain atheists believe that that there is existence apart from anything beyond the natural realm. I personally don't find it to be very compelling. But the fact that there is existence speaks to something. And so we either have to come up with a very convoluted theory of chance, of string theory and energy states that change that somehow led to existence, The multiverse Uh, and quantum fluctuations. There's all kinds of stuff. And really, any place you go with it points to something beyond our capacity to know. And, you know, at that point, again, we're in the realm of faith. You're so committed to a faith that all there is is the natural world that you are making up things in the natural world that could account for this natural world. But they're outside of our dimension um, by the very definition. 
of course, as a believer, I believe that creation starts in a person and was ordered into existence. But grappling with that, I think it's very logical to ask the question of why are we here? I think everything we know about science is that um, you don't get something that comes from nothing in an absolute sense. And so that we're here because something greater than us that's outside of our natural realm was, and that that something caused our existence. And of course, you could turn that into chance or whatever, but it, it points to something beyond. And I think that's a powerful testimony to God at the most foundational level of science. So if creation is the first point, um, the second, and what is probably the most influential for me, is grappling with the resurrection. And I think this is a powerful testimony to our faith. And you actually see this as being one of the main um, points of agreement in the New Testament that they repeatedly pointed back to was the validity of the identity of Jesus as the Son of God is found in him being raised from the dead. And you see that all throughout the New Testament. And N.T. Wright has written on this, a scholarly book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. It's, if you want to dive into that, and then he references this same concept in several of his other smaller books. But really diving into, there, there just isn't a good explanation for all the phenomena surrounding, um, surrounding the resurrection of Jesus, and that it was widely attested from a very, very early time that the followers of Jesus believed this, and that those same followers were willing to go to the cross and die, and that the authors of Scripture were willing to stake their claim on the eyewitness of people that were still living. Uh, you know, it points to the fact that there was for sure a community of people, not just one or two, but a large community of people that had had some type of experience with what they understood to be a resurrected person to the point that they were themselves willing to die and willing to, to forego social status. So, you know, any theory that's been put out there trying to confront that, it doesn't really seem to fit, whether mass hysteria or fraud. When you actually take it from what we know, there's just not a good explanation for the resurrection. And then you look at the fruit of it over time and the claims that Jesus made about himself and how stunningly they came true in such radical ways that there is no way a Jewish carpenter from the first century could have predicted in advance and the influence that that has had on the world since. So that alone is a powerful testimony to God. And on that point, Drew, there's something called the minimal, minimal facts approach. If you actually take the scriptures out of the equation and just look at the extra biblical sources from that time period, there is still overwhelming evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. It's actually quite stunning how much you can glean from extra biblical sources and make the case. In fact, we had a gentleman who was part of our church when we were in Kansas, and he uh, was an attorney and for a long time was an atheist and only came to faith later on. Well, I guess it had been probably in his early 40s. But he, when I asked him, you know, what actually brought you to faith? And he said, when I actually took the time, my, his wife had been a believer for a long time, and she had been trying to compel him to really look into the facts, knowing how he was wired. He said, when I actually took the time to assess the, the facts, he said, from an attorney standpoint, he said, I have never litigated a case or argued a case that had anywhere near the type of evidence that exists for the res resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said it was overwhelmingly compelling to believe that that was a real event. And what's so cool about that, and that's actually a pretty common thing you'll hear if you hear scientists themselves give interviews about their faith and you ask them questions, they'll often say similar things that at one level it's a product of faith, but if they had to pinpoint what is the scientific fact that undergirds the faith the most, repeatedly you'll hear them reference the resurrection. 
what I think is so cool about that is that is what Jesus himself said was what was going to be his validity. And I, if you want to read, I was actually just reading in John 2, where Jesus is having a showdown in the temple, and they're asking him, by what sign are you doing these things? In other words, what are you going to do to validate your authority to, that you are trying to assert? And his answer is, I'm going to destroy this temple, referring to his own body, and raise it again in three days. And then John goes on to give the commentary that after his resurrection, his disciples remembered and believed. You know, I think it's interesting that that's the thing that Jesus said himself. This is going to be the sign to you that I am who I say I am, and it's the resurrection. And still, 2,000 years later, through all the changes in science and knowledge and epistemology, that is still the witness that is leading so many people to belief is the fact that he conquered death. And, of course, the theological significance to that is what we anchor our whole faith on. And um, you see that, whether that's Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, but that's been the case since the earliest days of the church, and that continues to be in the world today. A few other things that I think are powerful to consider. One is the work of God in history through the church. There's just not great explanations for the church. And, you know, people have written stuff, and I've read it from a sociological perspective or even an economic perspective. But the stunning rise of the church across national boundaries, it was the first time this has ever happened where you have a faith movement like that where people so identified with it that they let go of previous identities to be part of this new thing called the church. And that wasn't just the early church in the Roman Empire, but that same trend has continued. And even around the world today, it's fascinating to see how the epicenter of Christianity has steadily shifted throughout history. It went from a a Near Eastern faith to, over time, a Greek faith and a Roman faith and a Western European faith. And today, it'd probably be an African, Latin American, and emerging Asian. And just seeing how the gospel has been appropriated within these cultures that are so radically different from themselves, from each other. You know, when you think of the the way the Christian faith is expressed in Nigeria today versus the way that it was expressed in the ancient Near East, you know, versus the way it was expressed in medieval Catholicism. And of course, we can pinpoint the problems in each of these churches, but the fact that the witness of God has continued like that, I think in and of itself is a sign of God's presence in the world. And we can take that, that kind of broad historical view, and also bring it into the active work of God revealing himself today, which I believe is a valid epistemology. I don't, I, I think the fact that God is moving, in, and I can attest to that in history and in science, but I can also look at that and see that in my own life and the lives of the people around me. It's not the only epistemology, but it is certainly a valid one. And God has not just revealed himself in the past, but God is continually revealing himself in the present. Um, there's a scholar named Craig Keener who tackles this in a book on miracles. I, I want to say it's one to 2,000 pages long. So actually, no, maybe it's four. It, it's it's up there. So if you're going to get it, be prepared. But he starts, there is this assumption, last time we talked about the Enlightenment, that miracles don't happen and that, that supernatural things are myths that have scientific explanation. And that all started with David Hume, the, the, the Scottish philosopher, who essentially had this argument for rationality that things that are real are things that we witness and that we should be able to expect and see natural phenomena in the world. And anything that's not like that belongs in the realm of superstition. And so it's circular, if you think about it, is that miracles aren't real. I um, mean, when somebody, yeah, because they're not real and because we don't see them, it's a, it's a circular form of reasoning. Well, Craig Keener tackles that and he says, but what if miracles are attested? What if they're not just some completely rare thing that never happens, but what if supernatural phenomenon is actually a common occurrence? 
And so he studies accounts of miracles, and it's that's why it's that long. I mean, millions and millions of stories of miracles that often follow the same patterns. And of course, some of them probably have natural, everyday explanations. It doesn't mean God didn't intervene, but maybe God intervened through natural means. But then there's plenty of others that don't. And so he's basically saying, he's like, maybe these aren't real. Maybe these are something that are an ongoing phenomenon. And I can certainly speak in my own life of times that God powerfully revealed himself to me in ways that were just as real as anything that I've experienced. And so, uh, you know, of course, if I, I we don't want to fall into relativism where it's only my experience that's a source of truth, but the revelation of God to me, in addition to the revelation of God in history through the person of Jesus, I mean, in the revelation of God through his scripture, and you start to add that all up, it all points in the same direction, and I think it gives us a picture of God. And lastly, I, I think another powerful testimony to God is meaning and purpose. You know, there are definitely tricky questions of relating to science and faith, but every belief system is going to have tricky questions. All of them will. And I would argue that the questions that if I was a believer in secularism or scientism, terms that we've thrown around on this podcast before, those tricky questions are really, really rough. Because I, I, you know, again, I want to be charitable. I, I think I could go out on a limb and say this, that I think if I truly am a believer in scientism or naturalism, kind of this this belief that nature is all there is, if you follow that road to its end, I don't see how it doesn't end in nihilism and just emptiness. And if you really go down that road, there is no meaning. And, and maybe you can make the argument that we make the meaning in the time we have, but I don't know that the meaning that's there is compelling. And it doesn't mean they're not great people or creative people who are atheists, and of course there are, but the, the belief system, so the tricky question if you're going to go down that road is at such a fundamental level of human existence that it's almost impossible to fully be human and believe that because you you lose sight of meaning and purpose and the things that make us who we are. And so I have a hard time saying that that belief system holds power because it doesn't actually answer the most basic questions of what it means to be human, of what am I here for, and how do I know anything to be true or real or right? And I think you're left in this void and it can get kind of dark and can get depressing. And, and of course, there are individual people who've come up with solutions that they feel work for them. And I, I want to respect that. But, but I think the belief system as a whole, I think, has a pretty significant, difficult question to answer. And so do we as Christians have difficult questions? Of course we do. And how we wrestle through certain passages of Scripture and reconcile some of our beliefs. And I, I acknowledge that. And I think we could talk about any of those. And I, I've personally found answers in my own study of the Word of God that that I feel grounded. And, you know, and of course, at the same time, I always want to walk in humility of asking God for better revelation. But the way that we're, we should build a belief system is not by taking something that's on the fringe and using that to call into doubt the whole thing. But you start with what you know to be true. I'm so convinced in the resurrection of Jesus. I'm so convinced in Creator God. I'm so convinced that humans are here for meaning and for purpose. I'm so convinced that, that I've seen the, active of, the activity of God in my own life, miracle stories and the power of God. And I, I'm in fellowship with so many other people who encounter the presence and the power of God. I'm so convinced in all of these things that it's out of that place. I then interpret the things that are difficult for me to reconcile. Going back through, you know, some of the genocide accounts in the Old Testament or how do you reconcile modern science with the first 11 chapters of Genesis? You know, and I get that. And I, I think anybody who studied this have had to wrestle with those same things. But I'll at least say for me, because I'm so clear on the other, that that's actually what gives me power to go back through and answer those questions. And, 
and you know, and I approach it with humility, but I also approach it with confidence. Let me just add one more before we wrap up, and that is the notion of information. We've alluded to every belief system has to give an account for creation. And I think this this question is not talked about enough in the realm of the scientific community. And uh, I read a book uh, by Francis Collins, the former director of the Human Genome Project under Clinton, one of the first, or he, he led the initiative to decode the human genome for the first time. And he has a you know, just a faith story, he grew up as an atheist and came to faith in his studies, actually, as he was pursuing his doctorate. And he wrote a book called The Language of God, where he talks about the mathematics behind DNA and what it would take for that, you know, for DNA, for RNA to kind of spontaneously generate. And it's just, it's so improbable that he said the leap of faith is so much greater than any religious or spiritual leap of faith that he could imagine somebody taking and I don't hear that talked about very frequently in, in discussions around the origins of life and abiogenesis and these other uh, accounts that scientists try to try to give, even in the search for life on you know on other planets and other far flung corners of the cosmos. That if you base your notion of the existence of life on time plus chance plus chemistry, that that would be a phenomenon that you'd see in many other places not reconciling that with the the miraculous existence of information Francis Collins would, would exert is irresponsible in some ways. So if you're interested, it's an interesting read, The Language of God, the, the existence of information as an apologetic, if you will, for the existence of God. And that could be tied in the realm of apologetics back to the design argument. And Drew, you mentioned um, tangentially the, the moral argument, which in large part was instrumental in leading C.S. Lewis to faith. And and that, there again, there's so much, there's just an overwhelming amount of evidence out there to help bolster the Christian faith that, that we can lean on science and even use it in, in that regard. So as we wrap up, I want to go back where we started. Ultimately, faith is God's revelation to us. And I, I think if we could take this whole conversation the last two weeks on faith and science, one word I want to highlight is humility. Because at the end of the day, if we think the human brain can make sense of creation, then I think we've maybe adapted the wrong posture. There's an element of humility that we need to approach this conversation and say that we need God's revelation to know truth. But in a world where there really is a crisis of truth, that actually becomes a powerful place to stand. And it's because of God's self-revelation to us, first and foremost in the person of Jesus, but as testified by the Holy Spirit through the scripture and through the church and history, that gives me a very firm place to stand. And then as I make sense of the world around, I'm not necessarily using those things and all the stuff we mentioned today. Those are not my faith, but they bolster my faith. My faith is in the person of Jesus. And yet all of those things give testimony and testify to faith. And uh, I love the the visual image that Mick gave of that that long hallway, if you remember, where there's all these different rooms in the house and um, you're looking out and you're, you're discovering the glory of God. And it's from the place of faith in the person of Jesus we have a place then to stand, to explore, to discover beauty, to discover science, to learn more about nature, but it has to start somewhere. So our call for all of us as a believer is let's be clear on where the somewhere is. Let's make sure the somewhere is very well grounded in faith, in the person of Jesus, in God's own self-revelation, and then let's use that unapologetically as our standing point, but also not be fearful as we engage the world around us. Um, we've referenced quite a few books and so highly encourage as you are discovering this, if this is something that's intriguing to you, pick up a few of those books. You can always email in 
to us and we can give you some more recommendations and learn to ground our faith together in the person of Jesus and then use that as a means of discovering and giving light back into the world. Thanks for tracking with us for a couple weeks on Faith and Science, and we will catch you next week on Ideology.